Hey, homebodies! Welcome back to the Introvert City Podcast, where we discuss culture, media, and faith from the perspective of an introvert's complex mind. Mm-hmm. Hi, guys. How are you Hello doing today? Hello, everyone. Thanks for coming back. Miss Karina, how are you doing today? Stop calling me Miss Karina. Call me Karina. Karina. I'm doing Karina good. LB. I'm really excited for our episode today. And how are you? I'm actually pretty excited as well. Yeah. I got a headache again. I'm getting headaches. Mm. We've both kind of been getting like sick. We're both deteriorating because I'm having a lot of stomach issues right now and it's very hard for me to eat things and it's making my life miserable. And Seth is over here having a headache every single day. She's strong, but she is a strong person. She'll get over it. Um, So so today we are going to be focusing on the specifics of an introvert's complex mind, specifically Mm -hmm. an introverted Christian person because I have a we have a guest on today you do have a guest. who would identify as an introvert Seth I'm so excited about our guest I'm so excited oh, I know why you're excited <laughs> I'm excited too <laughs> I was so thrilled to have him on so oh yes. we've actually been talking about doing a series like this too where we have yeah like so we might have a lot more guests too which is very to exciting. talk about like subjects this, I'm excited to just start all this of will this. be a heavy theology Bible episode. So if you're mm-hmm. into our more lighthearted episodes, go listen to our Christmas episode or something. I don't yeah. Know. If not, hi, mom. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So our guest today has worked in ministry for decades. He is currently a professor of Bible and theology who has also dabbled in some arts and sciences. My dad. Yes. <laughs> you're supposed to say hello. Hello. And yes, <laughs> I identify as an introvert. Good. I was going to. How gonna... do you identify? As an introvert as well. Because <laughs> last time we didn't ask, our last guest was Mr. David Garlock, and we didn't ask him until the end if he was an introvert or an extrovert. No, he's not an introvert. He's not. Yeah, he, um, he's super was, extroverted. We made an extrovert. <laughs> but I wanted, Seth and I wanted to have you on because you are an introvert, and you have inspired me in my introversion since I was so young and encouraged me to get away from people and that it's okay. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. And you also happen to be just about the smartest person I know when it comes to talking about theological questions. Wow, thank you. <laughs> so I'm super excited. It's true that I have a complicated mind, but that's not really a good thing. I mean, yes, it is. <laughs> it is a good thing. Not always. Okay, well, if you say so. So the first question that I want to ask is <clears throat> about the classes that you teach now. So what Bible classes do you teach and which ones are you most passionate about and why are you the most passionate about them? Well, I probably can't remember all of the courses that I taught in that department, but uh, my bread and butter is, uh, it's actually two courses, a part one and a part two, Christian Narrative One and Christian Narrative Two. And I, it's my bread and butter not just because uh, it has to be that way, but because uh, those are the ones that I enjoy the most. Those courses allow me to really help students learn what I'm passionate about them learning, which is how to understand the Bible as an entire story, a cohesive, unified story Mm. uh, with a beginning of God intending something, uh, a lot of the mess that goes all throughout the story, but God maintaining that intention, and then how that intention is accomplished in the gospel. And for me... I pretty much see 
I pretty much understand that all other theological conclusions have to come from that unified understanding of the story. That was very well summarized because as I was planning this episode, I was trying to make a question that would have you answer that, but you already answered it, and that's perfect because that's what we wanted to talk about today is the understanding of how the New Testament connects to the Old Testament and what the gospel looks like as an entire redemptive story rather than just snippets of the Bible and sections of the Bible that we kind of have to differentiate. I did want to jump in and say, too, a class that I regularly teach that is not out of the Bible and theology department is a race class in criminal justice with Dr. John Churchville, who is a uh, who has 20 years experience in all matters of arguing the law, prosecution, defense attorney, and public defender. And uh, he also runs the criminal justice program here at the college. And he offers a class out of his department, race class criminal justice, where I co-teach it with him and I get to teach a theological perspective on justice. And that is also very enjoyable for me to do. So I don't want to, I just don't want to um, not bring up those um, those classes on theology and justice that I also get to teach. We so, love Mr. John Churchville. Know. We're trying I can't to get think him. of anybody who knows him who doesn't love him. Yeah, we're trying to get him to come on. Such a, I'm such a different a story, guy. but <laughs> no, <laughs> he's he's so funny and he's so. What's the word when someone listens to you? Is it attentive? Yes. He, no, he gives good. He's very good at reflective listening. Yes, he's he is. Like one of the best people I know reflective so, listening. So, Mr. Churchville, if you're listening, please come on the show. Thank you. We love you, John. Yeah. Anyway. Um, <laughs> um, so, uh, Mr. Bruno, oftentimes I think that when you talk about, you know, the how the gospel, how the Bible is taught in church, oftentimes people can say, oh, well, you know, we're an Old Testament church, we're a New Testament church, we believe this and we believe strongly in this character and that character and set it up as a way to maybe affirm or not affirm certain things in, in the Christian world. How do you view the idea of churches looking at it like splitting up the two? And how how do you think they could instead maybe bring it together as a big kind of question? I don't know that churches really see themselves as an Old Testament or New Testament church, but one thing that that will definitely that, that definitely is a uh, is a thing is churches having something that they're big on, whether that's a a point of doctrine. It's usually something like that, but today with churches being more innovative, it's mainly wanting to be known for um, being being out of the box you know, being non-traditional, and they're almost in competition with each other with how, um, how, how big of a reputation can they get more than the other church who has a reputation of being non-traditional, mm. uh, which is pretty unfortunate. But emphasizing something that is usually an important thing, but for them it's kind of the main thing or mm. the big thing or even the whole thing. Mm. Uh, so I don't, I don't really fault them too much for that because it's, you know, certain churches have certain characteristics which bring in people of certain characteristics. But I do think that there is something happening of churches starting to explain the Bible as more of a story Mm. and a narrative than just some kind of rule book or some kind of 
um, book that mainly discusses their favorite point of doctrine. Mm. Uh, I think that's starting to happen, although mm. it could stand to be done a lot more. So that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and I think it's interesting that, that you mentioned that because I, I noticed that like when you say it's stories, like there's more stories and more metaphorical in every sense, there's lots of people that I've talked to, my parents have talked to, or friends of mine have talked to, and like we talk about it, and they're like, oh, this person said that, do you, you know, this, you shouldn't, you don't need to take everything so literally, you know, or to where it's like, you know, more traditional, not in a bad way, take everything literally or things too, too metaphorically, um, to where it's like, what are you really, what are you really believing here? Yeah. You know, is everyone a metaphor? Is Moses a metaphor? Is David a metaphor? That's something that I've actually, it's interesting talking to a lot of people. Of course, a big portion of, I don't want to say a big portion, certain scriptures are metaphorical and poetic. But some people will go as far to say that they'll get really crazy, like, you know, Jesus's resurrection was spiritual and not literal, or that Jonah being in the belly of the big fish was spiritual and not literal. Um, do you get those kinds of questions in your class? I don't really get those questions uh, because, well, let me let me back up a little bit. Uh, metaphorical or literal, right? So while the Bible has stories within it, it also is in and of itself. Like those smaller stories play a part in one big story, all throughout, and that's important to 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 help someone come to certain theological conclusions is what's going on in this <clears throat> particular story, but also how does it contribute to the one big story of the entire Bible. But I don't really get many of those questions of, of you know, was Jesus' resurrection literal or not, or was David a literal figure or not, because people who come to LBC understand that they're coming to a conservative college Although a college that knows how to help foster and develop critical thinking, still a conservative college that has certain presuppositions of at least certain parts of the Bible being literal, whereas other Christians may not see those parts as literal. But it's a good point that um, not all of the Bible is meant to be taken literally. So if if an antagonistic atheist, let's say, wants to corner a Christian, they might start with a question like that. Is the Bible literal or or not? And they're expecting that Christian to say, yes, it is, and then catch them with something about whether or not it's literal. Um, They're usually not speaking to people who have been trained theologically and then try to ask them that question, because somebody like me or my colleagues, we could be asked that question, is the Bible literal or not? And we would confidently say, depends on what part of the Bible you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. It's not all literal, it's not all figurative, but there are different genres of writing that, that make certain parts literal, certain parts figurative or metaphorical. Yeah. I find it interesting in, in conversations with certain friends of mine that are unbelievers or agnostic or atheists, when they ask me a question sometimes it's like they're expecting me to say a specific answer right. or they're expecting me to like stumble over my words and not know so that I not that to say that my friends are trying to make me look stupid but it is an easy way to win an argument when you ask a question where the answer is so simple like 
why does God hate these people? Tell me why God hates these people. And you're, and you're standing there like, I don't have the time to explain it to you. It's, it's a very like murky situation. Yeah. And it's, if they actually cared, I think they would sit down in a one-on-one conversation and be willing to hear the full answer like you just gave. Yeah, like the whole modern, the really modern like argument, the whole like, Get so closer. you believe in the Trinity. Get closer to your mic. Oh. Like the really modern argument like, oh, you believe in the Trinity, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. So you believe that three people can have a relationship at the same time, a close relationship at the same time? And I'm like, oh, I think. No, I saw it. one. Yeah, that was like, like. They're like, so you believe in, so you believe in polyamory? And I'm like, I never said that. No one ever said <laughs> that. Who ever said that? Or they'd be like, <laughs> oh, so God sent Jesus, right? But Jesus is God. So God just sent himself, right? Why would, why would God send himself? That's so stupid. Like, it's just these. So Abraham and Isaac. So, so, so. God wants you to kill your children or like, wants to like <laughs> things like what, that. What are you talking it's about? So like, it's, it's very, it's very one-sided. Yeah. Um, but as we t- actually talk about, you know, certain things from the old and new Testament, I wanted to ask many Christians, modern Christians will start off in the new Testament as at least I've noticed, like uh, yeah, I start do. off in the new Testament. Um, and then as they go into the old Testament, that's where they tend to kind of, you know, begin to really question and maybe even deconstruct what they really believe because, you know, let's all be honest, getting to Leviticus is pretty tough. But how do you believe that Christians, especially younger believers or even new believers, how can they view a very, very tough and assertive God who seems to be very judging over a much more calm and, I guess, for lack of a better word, chill God in the New Testament? <laughs> that, that That's an unfortunate, um, an unfortunate influence that almost two different not two different gods, but two different ways about God that are like highlighted between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And that is just not the case. That, that is, that's just the way, um, unfortunately, a lot of Christians have been trained in, in more of a covert and subtle way. They're not told God of the Old Testament is angry, but God of the New Testament is loving. But that can be the impression that they mm-hmm. tend to get in the churches that they're learning from. And a lot of that has to do with our misunderstanding of the law in the Old Testament. When we think of that, we immediately think burden or heaviness or judgment. Mm-hmm. And then the gospel comes in and sort of breaks the law into pieces, and now we're swimming in grace. The law is not something that historically, the Hebrews have, nor still, look at as something that they wish they didn't have to deal with. They actually value it as the probably the highest form of honor that God has entrusted them with his law. And his law was meant to be something that would bless the world, and it would be in the hands of Israel to do that. God had gifted them with his law. The problem is not the law. The problem is our ability to be able to go by it because Mm -hmm. of our sinful nature. And the gospel comes in and takes care of that problem, as well as does a number of other things as well. But to me, it kind of starts there, and that was something I had to relearn. One of my colleagues uh, who I teach with, Dr. Joe Kim, Uh, He and I teach a course together called A Theology of Social Justice. It's really cool. He developed the course, and he asked me to join him alongside. But anyway, one thing he said to me one time when we were just walking together after a class coming back to our offices, he said, uh, one of the hardest things about our job 
is is for us to unteach, right? Not just to teach, but to help students understand a lot of what they have come to us with. We have to show them that that needs to be relearned. Mm. And to do that, we got to get them to see that they have to be untaught in a lot of areas so that they can then get better information uh, given to them. That's one of those things, is the way we've handled the law, um, what, the, what the law even contributes into the gospel. It is a very glorious thing, the law is, from a Jewish perspective. They hear Christians devaluing the law, and that is one thing that is a major turnoff for them, mm-hmm. because the law is actually so highly valuable. Like, we think they're going to run to us and say, wait a minute, you mean I could be free from the law? That's not how they're looking at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they expect the law to be honored and respected, and they see it as their calling as a people to mm. manage that law and bless the world with it. So that, that's a long way of saying, I think that's one of, the, one of the reasons that churches pretty commonly in America have this distinction between Old Testament God, New Testament God kind of thing, mm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make sense. And it's interesting uh, that it is a misconception. Because oftentimes, you know, even churches in the modern day might even stray away from teaching, you know, certain books of the Old Testament or in the New Testament. But you can still find God being a tough, loving God in both the in both or, or even a very loving God in the Old Testament, as well as some pretty harsh things in you know the the, the New Testament that are taught. You know, like I mean, man, just people will say, "Oh, I love Paul because he's so encouraging and so loving," and like, yeah, but also like. My man gets pretty tough. Yeah. If you read no, through Romans, true. if you read Romans through Galatians, one. like, yeah. like man, he's like he's tough in some parts, but that doesn't mean that there's no that there's a lack of compassion, or that in the Old Testament or that in the New Testament that there's a lack of assertiveness and you know righteous maybe anger. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So I'm trying to remember something you said there, Paul being so encouraging and and all that stuff, and Jesus being so loving. I was telling a class today that. In Jesus' time, right, when he's when he's born into this world, the Jews for centuries had been expecting what was called their Messiah, you know, common Christian uh, uh, a term for Jesus, a title. And, and it actually is, it's a term that references a king. And Christians tend to come down on Jews for expecting a king that would rule in such a way that would put Israel on top of the world. Hmm. It's it's really not a knock against Israel as it is a knock against human nature because that's what we all want. We want we want to be able to be over others. Israel wanted that same thing while they were under Rome. And uh, where Jesus faults them is because they did not recognize in him the character of God, right? His teaching, his reaching out to people, everything about his miracles and his conversations and his interactions that expressed love and compassion and rescue were characteristic of the God of the Old Testament. Hmm. The only way that, the only other way to know about that God other than through Jesus was in the scriptures that the Jews had. And he faults them for saying they know the scriptures, yet they don't recognize Jesus, mm. right? So Jesus doesn't come in this way that makes the Jews go, that's not our God. Our God is 
aggressive mm. and mean and judgmental, right? Because that's what our history shows in, in our scriptures. No, he's saying, you have the scriptures to show you who I am in, his, in, in him being in the nature of God. Does that mm. make sense? Mm. So mm. this distinction that we make, even for Jesus, right, explicitly doesn't exist. Telling them, based on the fact that you know your scriptures, you should be able to recognize the character of God in me as I'm expressing it. Oh, yeah, and, 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 that's, and that's interesting because one story that Christians point to typically when talking about whether God is a loving God or whether God is a God who wants to see or whether God is a God who just wants to get rid of sin, which he should be both, mm-hmm. but is the, you know, the woman who's going to get stoned. That's a very, you know, obvious, famous yeah. story. And there are so many different moving parts, I feel, in that story that are so incredible. Because, for one, you obviously have Jesus saying, you know, cast the first stone, whoever hasn't sinned, which is just incredible and incredibly compassionate and loving towards sinners. Mm-hmm. But also telling her after that, go and sin no more, right? As a way to still say, I love you. And I want to love you, but you need to stop sinning. But also in that same moment, understanding that God himself was perfect and that he could have also cast that first stone, you know? Mm-hmm. And just understanding God in those three different ways makes that story a, a testament to why both the New and Old Testament, I feel, as as you look at Jesus, as you look at God, should be in a similar way, even though, you know, yeah, books like Leviticus are hard mm-hmm. and books like Philippians are really loving and cool and, and you know, the Gospels <laughs> no, are so a- amazing. That's and a they are, good but. point. I didn't. I think that story t- ties really well into the character of God. Mm-hmm. But I was actually thinking about this today. It just—it was a thought that I had. So, a lot of Christians nowadays will say something about Jesus having like had this enormous, tremendous effect on their life, and it's amazing. And yes, mm-hmm. that's like Jesus should have that effect. But they'll say something like, "Oh, I only can." A common phrase is, I can only break my chains because of Jesus, because of the works of Jesus on the cross. I'm only free. I can only know God because of Jesus. And that makes me think about the people in the Old Testament who didn't have Jesus, like the physical person of Jesus or the words of Jesus. How did they foster an intimacy with God or create an environment where they knew him personally? Because obviously we want to know God personally so how does that, do you understand mm-hmm. what I'm asking? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that obviously couldn't be said before Jesus because Jesus brings a later and complete revelation that people had not been aware of yet. So until it's not Jesus like they were comes. missing anything? No, they weren't, they weren't missing anything that God wanted them to know and to have at that time, okay. which primarily was the law. It was through the law that Israel would not simply know what God expected, but through which they would have a relationship with him. Like that's how valuable the law is. The problem is the people kept falling short of it. But God always, throughout the Old Testament included, always intended relationship. He referred to himself and his people of the Old Covenant, Israel. He referred a lot of times in, in relational terms he is a father or even having the heart of a mother with their children, a shepherd and their sheep. A lot of that is throughout the Old Testament and um, intended to say that God wanted in, in this covenant, in this pact, was to have a covenant relationship. 
and times you even get indications of emotional pain that God experiences in points where that relationship is very, very unhealthy. So God always intended relationship, but we kind of tend to look at it like, again, go back, going back to the main point, I guess, of this whole talk. Old Testament is law, New Testament is relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm. And how, okay, obviously this is a complex question, but if you could explain in some kind of simplified way, how would you say that the Old Testament and the New Testament merge together to create a redemptive overall story? Yeah, so I guess I have to I have to make sure I stick to a few very important things. Mm-hmm. Um because that's I mean that's I teach entire classes on that stuff. Yeah. But um I I think it's good to uh, if you could do this, just sort of erase these titles for a second of Old Testament and New Testament. Cuz those are titles we gave. All right? That that's not that's not original with the writing of the scriptures just like chapter numbers and verse numbers, and none of that was there in, in the earliest and especially the original writings. As we put together our version of the Bible, we, we, we put those categories in there. So let's erase that for a second <clears throat> and just say that there was a beginning, and that beginning not only shows us how the beginning started, but it also shows us what God intended, God's intention with creating everything. And there's some symbolism, there's some very overt statements that give us that picture, but the primary term we use in the world of theology, and among me and my colleagues, especially here at LBC, is this term of shalom. That's a Hebrew word which we have translated as peace. That's been around for a long time in churches, people have known that term, but they have understood it as just sort of me having a sense of inner peace personally. And that's because in America, we tend to treat Christianity, uh, we tend to posture ourselves very individualistically. Personal worship, personal time with God. Uh, Once I leave church, uh, my personal relationship and personal walk with God, that's how we do it in America. That's not how it's been done for most of history. But... Shalom is much more than just personal inner peace. It's the idea of peace and harmony, harmony between all things working together. Not just harmony within an individual element of something, but everything being in harmony or at peace with everything else. It's as simple as you both are musicians, Uh, But even for someone who's not a musician, understands, let's say, an orchestra. When you hear an orchestra play, that's shalom. It's Mm. many different instruments, many different kinds of instruments that are playing by one key and keeping their eyes on the conductor to make it all so that everybody plays their part toward a center, right? A, A particular focus. And God's intention was to get glory out of a creation where everything about creation, from everything up into the universe to all of the people and all of the species down on planet Earth, to be in perfect harmony without a break or any kind of dissonance or disharmony. Mm. So that was the beauty with which God created everything and then put human beings in charge of it all, right? Like you understand 
uh, the, the value of the responsibility that they've given you access to this studio as a student, mm-hmm. right? When you got that, that gave you a sense of responsibility and productivity, maybe a small sense like I'm moving up in the world now, right? <laughs> yes. There's something valuable to that. Well, God gifted human beings with the special privilege of being in charge of the entire creation. And so much could be said about what that means and and implications of that, but basically they were meant to reflect God's kind of ruling to the rest of the world. So when it says that human beings were made in the image of God, uh, what some of the language that's used in there in Genesis 1.26 is be fruitful, multiply, increase, and rule. And the primary role for being made in the image of God is this thing of ruling. We can get scared of that and think, oh, we think that means we have the right to abuse the creation and just, and just um, you know, overconsume uh, because we're human beings and we've been given that special privilege. No, the idea was that everything would be managed in such a way so that everyone and everything benefits in a productive way, right? But sin causes us to overconsume and things are out of balance and very few people in the world have most of the stuff in the world and that kind of thing. I'm not advocating for a specific economy, whether capitalism or socialism. I'm just saying God's original intention was a flourishing creation that would bring glory to him through its flourishing. And that is what sin breaks. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll kind of I'll, I'll, I'll stick a bookmark there mm-hmm. as an answer to that question so far. This was God's intention. God's intention was, was productivity and flourishing, which we call shalom. And then human beings tried to, in a sense, overconsume, yeah. tried to um, abuse the privileges that God gave them, and then it caused the opposite which was disruption of that shalom. Now, now, if the story starts with that, all of the mess that goes on throughout the whole story has to do with God still wanting that intention, God still having that intention, but human beings and even his very people being unfaithful to what God establishes. And then the gospel is the answer to how God accomplishes shalom ultimately. For the entire creation, and that's that. That's pretty much how I would describe the the theme of the biblical story: God's intentions for shalom, that shalom being disrupted, and then the gospel bringing it back into restoration. Hmm. The woman was too stunned to speak. That's yeah. That's that's pretty great. That Either so that, or I went so long that you thought about 15 other things. <laughs> no, I was very invested. Like Homer Simpson with the monkeys in his brain. <laughs> I, that's interesting. That happens to me a lot. I was so invested. Uh, that's interesting because I think when the word shalom is brought up, many people just look at it as, I think, a word in in like the, in like for G, like Jewish people say it. It's a Hebrew word, yeah. yeah. And like, or oftentimes in a way that's like a, it's it's very it's out of, it's people look at it as not that it is but you know out of touch with modern Christianity. Not a lot of people use I don't, I don't hear a lot of people use that word. Yeah. But the way you brought it up is very interesting. Well, that's because like, that's because and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna start getting getting hard on the churches here. That whole you know that whole desire to be innovative. They are afraid a mm. lot of times of language that people might not understand. Mm. Instead of just saying, "Let me teach you today about a word called shalom." 
and explaining it and thinking, you know what? Human beings would find this interesting and let me give them the benefit of the doubt that they might be interested in learning something intelligently. We assume, no, people don't want that. They're going to get scared because they don't understand and they're going to run away and we got to keep our numbers up. So make sure you don't use any of that theological talk because we don't want to we don't want to come off like that. John 360. So John 360. So instead we're going to do there. John 316 today. <laughs> That's interesting, though, and I and I and I do think that the church can t- typically stray away from certain topics when it comes to the deeper side of things. Uh, I, one a sermon I really loved that the pastor went into. He talked about the different types of love in the Bible. Yep. And I think it was philo and then agape. I love that. Mm-hmm. I thought it was so good. And I didn't think it was too much, you know. But I also thought that it was like it gave good knowledge into the different types of love portrayed in the Bible. Yeah. That was really interesting. And but. You don't really see stuff like that in modern churches, honestly. There's an art yeah. to it. You know, I, I can't go in front of a church audience and just start spewing off all these theological mm-hmm. terms and then get upset with them for not understanding. Mm-hmm. But we've responded to that by saying, let's stay away from it altogether. But there's an mm-hmm. art to it. You can do it effectively. Mm-hmm. Like when the pastor brought up Tetelestai, I was like, Tetelestai, I'm sorry. I was like, he said it? Oh my God. That was kind of crazy. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's all. But it, it is interesting that I didn't know that about the word shalom. Like, I, I'll even say it, I'll put in my own ignorance that I've always just looked at it as a word of like, you know, traditional church or older church or older religion. Yeah. Know? That's interesting. I yeah. have, so when my family moved um, from Philadelphia to Lancaster, there was, we went church hunting for a very long time. Probably for the first two years, we just visited different churches every single Sunday. And looking back now, as I'm older, I kind of remember some of the, I remember some of the messages and some of the pastors and the way that the congregation was. And I fail to see how the verses they use or the passages they use tie into the entire story, the redemptive story that you just described. A lot of it is personal application. And I'm... I'm learning about this in an interpretation class, but I do think personal interpretation is important. Last week, Seth and I were just talking about the importance of creative writing and intimacy with God and alone time with God. I think that stuff is so important, and for an introvert, you can't survive without that personal time. But I don't think that it should be solely personal. Like what Mr. Bruno was just saying, oh my gosh, that's so weird. I'm not calling you Mr. Bruno. No, don't call me that. (laughs) I'm sorry. What my dad was just saying was that it's all, like I keep repeating this, but it's all tied into the redemptive story. And so many churches I feel have failed to acknowledge that. Failed to acknowledge. Or when they use a passage or a certain scripture, they only apply it personally. Okay without mm-hmm. tying it into the entire yeah. redemptive story. And that also, I would say, is is a lack of training. I mean, we can't expect people to do what they haven't been trained to do, and unfortunately, even their pastors haven't been trained to do that. Um, you know, I was a part of a movement that had some good to it, but also uh, they would take somebody who was charismatic, who was good at a good entrepreneur, and make that guy a pastor. And I'd be like, that guy does not have qualifications to be a pastor, and his teaching would be terrible, and he wouldn't know 90% of the theology that he should know if he's going to be in a pastoral role. Um, but because he knows how to get people excited, make him the senior pastor because people yeah. give him all the attention. 
Um, there are other Christian movements, though, Christian denominations that, that expect a certain level of theological training, but not all churches, just, they just don't have that. They don't know how to help people interpret the Bible in light of a, a what we call a meta-narrative, um, in light of what the whole thing is really about. There's personal application. Yeah, people generally go right to that. Personal interpretation has pluses and minuses to it. If interpretation is only up to certain leaders, like it was pretty much in the history of the Roman Catholic Church, I'm not hating on Roman Catholics. For anybody who's listening, I love Roman Catholics. Most of my family is. Uh, and there's a lot I appreciate about Roman Catholicism, though I don't agree with everything. But there was a time when that, uh, you know, only the priests could give the interpretation of the Bible, and it wasn't even in the language of the common people. Well, that's, that, that's, uh, that's setting the stage for corruption, for a system to be, um, you know, to be manipulative, exploitive, and all that stuff. You don't want to go the other extreme and just leave it to all the people because then that turns into, you know, everybody can interpret whatever they want and we can we just become our own hot mess. You know, if we can find ways to create interpretations that we like and say somebody who's been trained doesn't really have anything to say because I want my own interpretation, that's not healthy either. So there's a healthy balance in there somewhere. But, you know, you also are both movie lovers. Look at it like a movie. If you think of a movie with your favorite scene in that movie, that, that scene only makes sense. It makes the most sense when you understand it in light of the whole movie. Mm. So a video clip I'll, I'll play, or I used to play until I realized most of my students haven't seen Rocky, which um, <laughs> I, I, I don't understand that. Not just because, you know, it was great in my generation, but because that's historical for America. I but grew anyway, up on those movies. Uh, Rocky Part 1, I use this as an example. I say, watch this scene, and it's the scene where Rocky goes into, uh, he's invited to a big promoter's office, and that promoter is going to invite him to fight Apollo Creed, the heavyweight champion of the world. Rocky himself is a club fighter. Uh, he has no name, no recognition. He's just trying to fight for a few dollars here and there. Uh, but the, this heavyweight champion of the world decides, you know what, for a great show, I want to give somebody who's unknown a chance at the title. So, of course, Rocky gets that opportunity. It's the scene where he goes into the promoter's office and they have the conversation. And Rocky's saying, yeah, I know you're probably calling me here for sparring. And he's like, what? He said, yeah, you probably want sparring partners for the champion as he's getting ready for his fight. I'd be happy to do it. And he says, no, you don't understand what I'm saying. Would you be interested in fighting him for the heavyweight championship of the world? And you just see the shock on Rocky's face and you start to feel the chills like he's actually being given that opportunity he can't even he, he can't believe it. He even says no because it's too big of a dream for him. Like, no way that, that's possible. And, and then I, I stop it at the end of that scene. And I say, what could you tell me about that scene? Any facts about that scene? And they'll say, oh, Rocky was wearing a leather jacket. Um, the promoter was wearing a suit. They're in an office with wood panels. They're having a conversation, right? Okay, you can tell me all the facts about that scene. But what is the only way to know how valuable that scene is. And I've only had one student tell me. I've used this example probably a good eight times. <laughs> and one student one time said, if you know the whole movie, I said, exactly. When you know how that movie ends, that's when you understand how valuable that specific scene mm -hmm. is. It's the same with the Bible. We get into dissecting what's in that particular section that we're reading, 
uh, and then try to get to application, but you only know how valuable it is when you understand its place within the whole narrative of what the entire Bible is trying to communicate about God's intentions for God's creation. Another long answer. My mind jumped to the La La Land scene. You know which one I'm talking about. The scene? The scene. The seven-minute musical number. At the end? It's the montage. At the end of the movie? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry to spoil it, but um, that scene is so emotional because you're understanding the premise of their entire relationship and why it's not going to work out. And now I'm thinking about it. But Mm -hmm. that was a wonderful point. And I think that's a wonderful way of looking at it. Yeah, because we could get into so many people just pick certain verses and they don't understand in the context, let alone the context of the entire Bible, the context of the passage or the context of the book. And that's interesting because like uh, as another movie I can bring up to say the whole you need to watch the whole thing to, to get it. Yeah. Like you could watch uh, like uh, Kung Fu Panda, right? This is watch, always your movie. No, but but for real, you could just watch like the one minute scene where it's uh, Master Shifu like teaching Tai Lung how to fight and loving him and think, oh my God, that's so cute. But you wouldn't know that he's the villain of the story, Tai Lung, you know? You'd have to watch the whole movie to understand that, you know? Or you'd have to watch the whole movie to understand what the dragon warrior really is, you know? <laughs> I, I know it's like it's a, it's like a, it's a kid movie, but it's like, that's what I mean. You know, there's a lot of things that if you don't, if you don't fully put your attention to it, yeah. and a lot of people and even Christians like to just cherry pick. And I think cherry picking is, mm-hmm. that's a big word that gets thrown around a lot in uh, debates. and It does get thrown around a lot. But people do it. People do do it. Yeah, yeah. That's Theological debates are a lot of cherry-picking. And a lot of times the questions themselves aren't even the right questions. Like, for example, this is, this is too much to really get into here, but, but just as an example, you all know of the discussion of predestination and election, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And what that turns into, and I discussed this in one of my introductory level theology courses, what that turns into is a conversation about whether or not God chooses us or do we choose him. And that's enough to keep you up in fear all night thinking about that. I've been there. My students are there. Um, And after I have a little fun scaring them with that, Oh my gosh. I, I always enjoy I have to mess with them a little bit. <laughs> I then bring them relief when I tell them I don't think that's what's being intended at all in the use of those terms. Predestination, chosen, and election, and all that stuff. That's essentially language that was meant for Israel, but then language that's applied to, in the gospel, anyone who is in Christ. So we go from Israel being the chosen, elected, predestined people, and they are rooted in Abraham, to in the gospel, all who are God's people are people who are in Christ, not just Abraham. And so now this this title that was for one nation is now applied to anybody around the world who is in Christ. That's the purpose of Paul's teaching on election, that it's no longer just focused on this part of the world, but now it applies all over the world Mm. if anyone is in Christ. So to ask, to read those passages and ask, so does God choose us or do we choose him? I'm I'm confused. That's the wrong question because that's not what the apostle was trying to discuss. 
mm. when he uses those terms. So what's the point of even torturing ourselves over that, trying to figure it out? It's mm. the wrong question altogether, if that makes sense. It makes yeah. a lot of sense. That's interesting. And, and, that is, and that's interesting because like I, as a, I used to struggle with the idea of free will. Me too. And uh, uh, the idea that do we, if God is all-knowing and all-powerful, then why do my decisions matter? Mm-hmm. You know, or do my, or do I even have decisions? Do I really make decisions? You know, even if I think in this moment right now, like instead of doing what I'm supposed to doing and doing the podcast right now, I get up and do ten jumping jacks. Yeah, God would still like God would still know I'm going to do that. You know, or know that yeah. possibility. That's the whole type of stuff that it's like, you know, it made me fe- it made me feel that if God is really omnipotent, can He really be on? Can a person who is all knowing give someone free will? Is that possible? Yeah. You know, and that was a thing that I struggled with a lot. Yeah, and it's interesting to hear you say that it we're not looking at it in the proper way. Like I scare myself a lot with that as well, or at least I did. I it still crosses my mind every now and then. Um and it probably always will. But you talk a lot about the mystery of God and some things we will just never know, and that's okay because that's what differentiates humanity from a divine God. Mm. I just I loved I I always remember a conversation that me and you had outside our garage when I was asking you about all these questions that I had and you were talking to me about the mystery of God and how it's not something to be feared but it's actually a really beautiful thing and it almost keeps us eager to learn because we're eager to learn and we can only learn and retain so much information but there will always be an aspect of mystery that's appealing. Do you want to say anything about that? Yeah, well, you can, you can, anybody can still ask those questions if they want. If they want to entertain the thoughts of how much does God determine what I do? How much of it is my own choice? Um, there's just no need to feel like you got to have that figured out because that's not something the Bible's even trying to address. Hmm. Right? But again, we, we come to the wrong conclusion on what we're supposed to do because we have the wrong questions to begin with. No one ever said we have to have all that math figured out of how it works. Why not just embrace the beauty that um, while God makes us as a species free to choose, right, in the unique way that human beings do, also at the same time appreciate that there are things that God sets up for us to move us into his will. Why not just enjoy the beauty of that? I mean, that's essentially what beauty is. Beauty is enjoying a mystery, Hmm. right? When you're appreciating beauty, you can't explain mathematically what's happening at that moment. Hmm. You just know it is a very, very valuable moment or a very, very valuable way to think about something or take something in. You're taking in a mystery, and you're appreciating mystery at that point, right? But it's something wired within human beings to be able to appreciate. There's so mm-hmm. much. That's getting philosophical now, but. There's so much relief in that. Mm-hmm. And also, it kind of goes back into our topic of last week's, too, into nature and music, how we both talked about God's beauty in both nature and in music. Mm-hmm. And in music, you know, like that album I was talking about, the Donny Hathaway one that I've been crazy about. Yeah. Um, I can't explain to you why it's beautiful. I can talk about the music theory, yeah. but I can't say why this is prettier than, you know, a, thir- a, a two-hour-long jazz album. Yeah. You know? Um, not not a problem with jazz. I love jazz. But, <laughs> but it's that um, that is beautiful to me, but I can't fully explain to you why. Right. Because 
something could have something else could have the exact same composition and I don't find it as great or as beautiful. It's like with remakes. Certain remakes might be bad. Mm-hmm. Certain remakes might be really amazing. Or as for you, how you look at nature, you might just look at something like a beautiful field that's gorgeous looking, blowing in the wind. Can't explain everything there. You can't explain why trees grow, you know, or why clouds, you know, why clouds look like the way clouds do. But yeah, no. it's just the mystery behind it is what makes I, it really I gorgeous. Really, I need to write that down. I really love the way that you phrased it. You said that's essentially mm. what beauty is. Beauty is enjoying the mystery. That's so good. And I can apply that to so many scenarios in my life. Yeah, well, there's there's a, um, I'll tap into my arts and sciences side a little bit. Um, in one of the courses I teach online, it's called, I mean, it's, it's an introduction into the humanities. And uh, the first assignment that students do, one of the first is to look at, a, look at a short little cartoon film and they're told to list what the facts are about that film. Here's what's happening. And then they're asked the question, now what do you think is the meaning of the film? And the purpose is to show them two different categories of truth there. Truth is not all facts. Truth is also mm-hmm. about meaning. So I'll give you an example. Do you love Ellie? Yes, Ellie is my precious Yorkie. Yes. She's my dog. Okay. Ellie the dog. So if I say, um, okay, let's take that. Uh, what kind of dog is Ellie? She's a Yorkie. She's a Yorkie. Is that a fact? Yes. So is it true? Yes. Yes, okay. I'll ask again. Do you love Ellie? Yes. Okay, is that true? Yes. Prove it. Okay, I see what you're doing. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but just because you can't prove it doesn't mean it's not true. That is truth that's rooted in meaning. That That's the unique wiring of human beings that we experience this thing called meaning. And meaning is not proven by facts. Mm. Right? Yet there's still truth within it. Well, there's that part of God being truth to us and giving us truth. It being wrapped up in meaning, even though it might not be able to be proven in a debate with an agnostic, yep. right? Mm-hmm. Because there's more to life than just that. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was awesome. Just to add on that, I think it's very interesting the way that a fact can has to have the idea of meaning and actual factual evidence and truth inside of it as well. That you can't explain love, you can't explain terror, you can't say why it, you know you feel scared, why you feel this, but um, or, or or prove that you're scared, but yeah, you know that that's interesting. That's all. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. Did you have a final message to the listeners before we wrap up? There's one more thing I wanted to say about the consistency of God's character, Old Testament, New Testament. A oh. pretty quick thing: God being accused of being a God of just judgment and wrath and anger in the Old Testament. What people don't realize is that the purpose for God's relationship was, with Israel was to express God's goodness through Israel throughout the rest of the world. And where there's judgment, almost all of the judgment that comes from God is because Israel fails to be a blessing to the world that they were supposed to be. Instead, they were getting caught up in corruption with other nations. And God would warn them, in love and use very relational language, saying things like, have I not loved you? Am I not like a father to you and you are my children? You know, come back and I will take you in like a father. All that relational language is used. And the, and the scriptures literally say that over and over, God warned them through the prophets, but they mocked God and laughed at his prophets. Hmm. And so when Jesus comes onto the scene, 
one of the ways that we're describing Jesus more in, theolo- in, in theological circles is as the embodiment of Israel. He also was equal with God. He also was the Son of God. But he also is the embodiment of all that was intended for Israel. So when Jesus is healing people, doing miracles, doing all these things that we say is showing love, he's doing what God always commanded for Israel to do as his people, but they fail. So the judgment is the result of Israel not being the um, the cause of flourishing throughout the rest of the world. And when Jesus comes and does that, he is doing what was always intended for Israel in the law. Mm. So there you have, when you understand the judgment in that perspective, it is Jesus represents how God gets out of Jesus what he had said he wanted to get out of Israel mercy, compassion, uh, flourishing in the world. In the Old Testament, God says to Israel, what does God require of you but to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God? It is when Israel doesn't do that that they get the judgment, if that makes sense. Hmm. So that's, that's, that's just a little something to bring yeah. some understanding to that consistency that's of great. character, Old Testament and New really Testament. Good. Thank you for, for having me. It's been fun. I enjoyed it. Um, Thank you for coming on. Yeah, I can't speak enough about learning the value of the entire, or the value of learning the entire biblical story. Uh, So wherever anyone can find teachers who teach that way, try to, you know, try to get exposed to them because I didn't have to have people tell me as I was, as that was revolutionizing my understanding of the Bible, people didn't have to tell me, now here's how you apply it and here's why it's... Other things in the world just started to make sense to me. Hmm. Why is justice important? Why is helping those who are less fortunate important? Um, those kinds of things. Uh, why is it important to have Christians in government to help influence you know, policies? Like all of that, just those, all of those pieces started falling into place as I was understanding the story itself. So um, find a way to learn it, and, and you won't be sorry. Amen. That's so good. I love talking about this stuff. <laughs> I sat in on one of my dad's classes and it was it was awesome and it was it cultivated an environment of question asking and I think that's so important. So thank you again for taking the time to come on. Seth, any thoughts? Any thoughts from Mr. Seth? Yeah. Um no, no thoughts, just really good really good conversation we had today. Yeah. I think um I think this was probably our most theologically deep episode. Yeah. We haven't had one in a long time. It was good. We haven't had one in a while. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed it too. We'll be back next week, same day, same day. There'll be more of these types of conversations coming up soon. Yes, we're going to be planning some more of these because we're really enjoying them. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much, and we'll see you guys back next week. Goodbye, homebody. Bye.